Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Richard Watts here. Coming up, I'm going to be chatting with Tiffany Lindell Knight, the National Vice President of Actors' Equity from the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. And we're going to be looking at what the US writers' strike and actors' strike means for Australian actors, Australian crew who might be working currently on a US production that's been shut down because of the strike. We're going to be exploring all of that and indeed how we can support those who have been impacted by the strike as well. To talk us through some of this, I'm joined on the line by Tiffany Lindell Knight, who is the National Vice President of Actors' Equity, part of my union, which I'm very proud to be a member of, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Tiffany, thanks for joining us here at Triple R. You're very welcome, Richard. Hi. So just briefly take us through what this US strike is all about. Well, like uh, a lot of employees around the world... uh, uh, actors have noticed a, a significant drop in their wages as a result of inflation over the last few years. So that's one of the main issues that uh, actors are fighting for. But we have a couple of other unique conditions as well that actors, particularly in the United States, have been experiencing. One is the uh, the change in the way actors are paid residuals. So as a result of all the work that's being done on streaming services, the traditional way of being paid after after uh, a piece of work has been out in the in the world for a couple of years, has changed. So, with network television or traditional films, um, normally you're paid an, uh, an amount upfront, and then after a couple of years of it being in distribution, you get some little paychecks every once in a while that really do support your your long term income. Um, but the streaming services don't calculate that in the same way, and actors have noticed that their residual payments have dropped radically. So that's been one big concern. Uh, another big concern is uh, is the the use of artificial intelligence in creating images, and um, a lot of actors have been found, have have been told that their image can be used. Now their bodies will be scanned, their voices will be used uh, without their consent. They can be changing their scenes, they can be changing their look, Um, and there have been a number of examples of background performers who have been paid a hundred bucks to use their image in perpetuity in any way uh, without their consent. So the union is really fighting to protect their image as well as their income. Those are two of the main issues right now. The idea of uh, studios and streaming services saying, we are going to use your image in perpetuity. Oh, we don't need to hire actors anymore. We can just digitally add you into a scene. That is deeply concerning, both for the future of art, but also for uh, the appropriate payment of actors for their work. That's right. It's quite terrifying. And, you know, really, I think that... Actors have been the canary in the coal mine for a number of issues over the last few years. I mean, we've seen that actors are sort of the initial workers in the gig economy. And as we've seen here in Australia, um, the way um, people are paid through gig work has had a severe impact across the economy. And I think that this is another example of how AI 
although it can be a wonderful tool in many ways, really has some um, deeply concerning moral issues as well as economic issues. And so it's really important that we all stand with actors in this fight right now as this new technology is being implemented. Now, the strike began with Hollywood screenwriters, uh, which means that production on several shows ground to a halt. It's now, as you say, spread to actors, which means they are refusing to uh, promote new films and new TV programs and so forth. This is now also having ramifications in Australia. Talk us through what impact this is having for uh, Australian uh, crews working in sound and film and elsewhere whose productions have been uh, paused. And is it also impacting Australian actors locally? Yeah. Uh, in, in some respects, in some areas, there will be impacts, but those would specifically be offshore productions, so productions from the United States, where we have leading actors who are SAG-AFTRA members in those main roles. Those actors, if they ha- are no longer able to work, will mean that some productions will have Australian uh, crew and actors that will have to be stood down without pay. However, the majority of the productions that are happening under MIA contracts, uh, so our, our contract with the screen producers of Australia, will not be affected at this point in time. So right now, um, Mia, uh, and, and some actors won't, won't necessarily know if they are under a SAG contract or a Mia contract, so we're recommending that you contact your local organiser or contract Mia just to get clarity on that. Now, I know that, for example... Uh Over in the States, we've seen high-profile directors walking out of film screening saying, no, I'm going out on strike to support the actors I work with and so forth. Here in Australia, uh, I know that the new Eric Banner film, Force of Nature, which is a sequel to The Dry, is now being delayed in cinemas, and Banner has said he will not be doing publicity for that film as well. So it's clearly having local ramifications. I guess I'm particularly concerned if uh, local actors and local crew working on international productions are being affected because the show has been paused and they're not getting paid... We know already that uh, life in the gig economy for artists and uh, arts workers and film crews and so forth, it's already a a precarious uh, and perilous industry to work in. What Mm -hmm. will the union be doing to assist people who are suddenly out of work and were going, well, I, I had six months work lined up, how the hell do I pay the bills now? It is absolutely a concern. Um, Under our agreements, if they are stood down, um, they still will be collecting long service service leave or vacation leave. So that's one thing that will be happening that they can be guaranteed. And their rights to that position will be continued when they are stood back. But you're absolutely right. We That's the importance of solidarity and us working together as a union is to be able to work together, to stand together, to let people know, employers and producers know, that we, um, we have to take this hit right now because we're supporting our brothers and sisters overseas because it's only really a matter of time before the things that are happening there can ultimately reach here. So this is the time that we have have to take the hit and work together to support each other. And I understand that there's also been a suggestion that you can support cast and crew who have been affected here in Australia by donating to uh, the Actors Benevolent Fund. 
the active benevolent funds all across the country are really powerfully um, united in supporting actors. They've got a long history of that. Here in South Australia, that would be the support, uh, Performer Support Fund and the Victoria Benevolent Funds. Yep, they're they're wonderful organizations. They are actually allied together now um, so that if you're working in one state, you can contract that the whole Australasian uh, uh, alliance of benevolent funds, and they um, are, have, will have your back, and they have for years. The other thing, of course, people can do as well as showing solidarity with uh, the US crew and actors and screenwriters who are on strike at the moment, uh, show solidarity with them. But also, if you're not already a member of your local union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, uh, obviously, if you're an actor, you are probably a member of Actors' Equity already. But other people may wish to consider joining MIA. You can do that at www.mia.org. Uh, there are also things like the Australian Writers Guild, and other organisations that can help negotiate for writers, actors and other artists in similar situations. Tiffany, are we expecting to see uh, an Australian strike like this? Is it likely to happen in the next year or two? Well, we're, right now we are... Um we, we have a really strong relationship with the Screen Performers Association, Screen Producers Association. So we're not seeing that likely to happen at the moment in time right now. Um, so we're hoping that by providing solidarity with the people, our brothers and sisters in the United States, we're going to be able to stop that in its tracks. And as you said, yes, anyone, whether you're a union member or not, can provide support through social media. That's one of the positive things we have with this new digital world is that it is democratizing and it does give you an opportunity to contact, uh, to, to, to make your opinions known. You can contact SAG-AFTRA yourself. The sagafterstrike.org website will give you a whole link to their socials where anyone, a union member or not, can say that you're standing with those actors. And you can also sign their petition to let, your, to let producers know that this matters not just to actors, it matters to actors' families, it matters to audiences who want to see really a safe and moral way to make our art and tell our stories. And as we saw during the worst period of the lockdowns in the pandemic, consuming art is one of those things that helped keep many of us sane and happy, let alone its ongoing importance for representing Australian culture nationally and internationally and more. Art matters, so yes, supporting actors, supporting screenwriters and more is very significant. We mentioned the Victorian Actors Benevolent Trust. You can also donate to them at vabt.com.au. I've been chatting with Tiffany Lindell-Knight, the National Vice President of Actors' Equity and from the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, MIA. MIA.org for more information about the union. Tiffany, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. My pleasure, Richard. Thanks a lot. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're going to talk tragedy. We're going to talk teenage love. We're going to talk Shakespeare. I'm joined in the studio by Rose Riley and Jacob Warner, who are performing in Bell Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming into Triple R. Thank, Thank you, you so much. 
Before we talk about this particular production, what was your, individually for each of you, your first exposure to Shakespeare? Ooh, I reckon in about year 10 in a literature class, we read Macbeth. Uh, I remember that because my teacher made me read it, a lot of it out loud. I couldn't work out why, but apparently maybe I was making a bit more sense than anyone else, which I definitely wasn't. Um, and I, I didn't understand it and I didn't like it. Um, but I, the, in this, I find having to study Shakespeare has that effect on people. It's it, tough. It, it takes the fun out of it because you're analysing the text and not yeah. coming to it out of love but because you're at school and you have to. Yeah, my, the same year, though, my dad took me to a, a Bell Shakespeare production because I grew up in Shepparton in country Victoria and they tour um, nationally and they brought the two gentlemen of Verona to Shepparton and my dad took me and about 10 or 15 minutes in which I think it, your ear takes about that time to tune into Shakespeare. And even as a 16-year-old, I was like, oh, I, I, I get it now. And I, by the end of the show, I turned to Dad and I was like, I think I kind of want to do that. Hmm. Rose, what about you? What was you? Were you also somebody exposed in school through, uh, I don't know, like I certainly also had to do the Scottish play at high school twice, two years in a row. Oh, Seems completely unfair. It's kind mm-hmm. of like Shakespeare has written other plays. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, exposed during high school as well. Um, I was a big drama nerd, um, studied drama. I went to performing arts school at WA where I'm from. So, um, I was pretty into it. I think the first <laughs> play I did was Twelfth Night when I was about 13. Wow. Um, and yeah, I was, I actually really enjoyed it. I don't, I, I honestly don't know why. I probably enjoyed it more then than I do now. <laughs> Just joking. Um, yeah, and I studied it in school. I did Macbeth as well. Played Lady M when I was 15. Wow. Um, yeah, don't know what that was like. But, yeah, I, I got really into it in high school. Yeah. One of the challenges for, for actors with Shakespeare is the the rhythm and tone and style of the language and I've certainly seen I've seen some brilliant productions of Shakespeare over the years I saw Anthony Scher as Richard III oh, wow. back in the day and that was the moment for me where I went oh Shakespeare yeah. oh this is this is amazing yeah. and then I've also seen productions where there's no poetry there's no rhythm to the language because the actors are so used to contemporary dialogue mm. that bringing Shakespeare's text and words to life can be a, a struggle it, Sounds like for the two of you, exposure at a relatively young age means you've had plenty of time to, to get your both your head but also your ears around the language itself. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've studied it a lot in high school in both, like, English class and drama and then I went to a drama school. Whopper? So, yeah, I went to Whopper, yeah. Um, and uh, definitely having that kind of base study text underneath helps... Um, being really familiar with just the the workings of it, the pentameter, um, prose and verse, and and the way that works has definitely helped. But yeah, it's definitely um, I don't know, just the exposure, and I think just leaning into it and really relishing the words. Uh, I do feel that there's not much point in doing Shakespeare now unless you're going to really use the text. Yeah, mm. I I think there are rules. And I think that it's good to learn those rules and you can't ignore them. But I think at some point you need to release yourself of that too because I think the structure can be um, uh, restricting. Um, And so I think it's a balance. And we've been lucky enough to do a lot of it is the other thing. And I think at this stage we've definitely gotten better at it. 
I, I reckon the first couple of times I did it, I was a little bit, I, I overthought it a lot. Um, but I, I don't think a lot about it anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking less and less the more I do it. I, I, I think it's kind of intrinsically the rules are in me now and I know when to use them and I know when to ignore them. Now, in terms of Romeo and Juliet itself, it's such a, a well-known story in so many ways that has it been a challenge to to let go of, to undo or forget earlier preconceptions of productions of the play that you've seen, et cetera, and just work in the moment with your director to make this new production feel fresh? Mm. I, th- I think for me, um, I, I did the play with Bell Shakespeare in 2016. I played Benvolio. So I, I've done the play not that long ago. So I also have that production in my head as well as I think a lot of people in our generation grew up with the Baz Luhrmann film. So that's quite ingrained in us and I think ingrained in the culture. Um, and I also think that we all grow up thinking we know what the story of Romeo and Juliet is. I can't remember a time when I didn't know about Romeo and Juliet to the point where we have we have parents bringing children under 10 to see the play because I think they think it's this romantic comedy, which for half the play it is. But then there's the second half. And I, I, I watch these, like, honestly, six, five, ten-year-olds in the front row and I go, oh, wow, they will enjoy the first half and then they're going to have – the parents are going to have to explain a lot of things to them in the second half. But in terms of uh, approaching it uh, – I, once again, I read the, I learnt the lines. <laughs> I knew that the way that Peter does his productions, Peter Evans, the artistic director, there's not a lot of um, detail in the set. It's a fairly open world. So we have two black platforms and some swords and uh, occasionally we'll put on a rough. But there's not a lot of detail in the world. So we knew that we'd be focusing a lot on the language and the relationships. And so for me, I just learnt the lines and I got up on the floor and I listened to the other actor in the scene and I just tried to approach the scenes uh, completely new. And what we found is that if you lean into the scenes of the first half, the first half really is a comedy and it's really funny and he tricks the audience into thinking that it's a comedy about Romeo whereas the play's actually a tragedy about Juliet. And so he's giving you two different plays. And I, I, I think that our production is two different plays. It's a comedy in the first half. And then after the death of Mercutio, the play completely shifts into a tragedy. And I love that our production is leaning heavily into both of those different styles. Rose, do you want to pick up on that and just talk about your experiences of of entering this production? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, like Jake said, I didn't find it too hard just once we are in the room rehearsing to listen to the actor, lean into the words and kind of forget about any preconceptions. We're also older than the characters are written and there's some other... Um, and because Juliet's, what, 13 and Romeo's 15 or something? Is that yeah, true? yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, 13. It's quite... Ex- um, explicit about that in um one particular scene um but yeah i'm 30 and you're 30 ish <laughs> yeah <laughs> 30 adjacent um, and the director's also um done some other not traditional casting with some uh, amazing female performer blazy best as mercutio and another performer alex king as um paris and age has sort of become um fairly irrelevant mm. um so i think that kind of helped free us from those traditional preconceptions. Um, yeah, I mean, and I played Juliet when I was 17. Um, so that was 
interesting to return to it um, with a lot more experience. Um, I think, you know, hopefully a much better understanding of what she's going through and what the play speaks to. Um, Yeah, I think I had one little moment just when we opened of feeling that having that awareness that the audience have preconceptions. Um, I feel like I could get rid of mine quite quickly, but then I did have a little self-conscious moment thinking of um, what the audience would expect and, you know, that we are older and, um, yeah, basically just what, they all have their own versions of um, either the Zeffirelli or, yeah, um, it's um, so well known, but um, I think I've let go of those now. Mm. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with actors Rose Riley and Jacob Warner, who are performing the titular roles in Pell Shakespeare's new production of Romeo and Juliet, which is on uh, at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax until the 29th of July, and I'll give some more details shortly. Um, Rose, Jacob mentioned the, the set design, the, the kind of two black blocks on stage, which, hearing about it, I immediately read that as, uh, I don't know, our two households, kind of, uh, and literally the division between them shown visually. It's, uh, and Anna Tridloan is the set designer, I believe. Yeah, that's right. She yeah. designs the costumes as well. Yeah. Um, given that it's such a stark set, uh, which... A, helps with touring uh, because mm-hmm. this is a production that is, has moved around the country, so it's certainly much easier to set up something like that. But how much emphasis does that place even further on the actors if there's kind of no... If the bells and whistles of set design and stage design aren't necessarily there, does, do you feel that that places kind of greater pressure on you as performers? Yeah, I mean, it's a good pressure. I think uh, I'm quite into the minimalist thing, Um uh, and I do think there's so much to focus on with the language um, that giving that space uh, and giving that sort of priority is is really great. Um, and it's quite freeing. The space can kind of function in so many different ways. It can be a balcony at one point. Um, it can be indoors, outdoors. A tomb. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be a tomb, a bedroom. It can be literal and liminal mm. uh it's really um great a great playground for for the actors I, I feel and it does help with a lot of um I feel like we've used it in some really cool ways mm. um helps story tell it helps with relationships and tension and yeah I've I've really enjoyed playing on this set Jacob, given that uh, we've talked about the fact that there's some cross-gender casting in the play mm. and, and Bell Shakespeare have got a great tradition of mm. doing that, the, the, what springs to mind immediately for me of, is Kate Mulvaney's Richard III mm. a few years ago that was just brilliant. Mm. But that can also get traditionalists who just want to see Shakespeare performed mm. as Shakespeare properly, mm. blah, 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 kind of mm. up in arms. Mm. Um, how do you think... Kind of those that kind of more purist audience mm. will respond to this production. Well, if anything, they should be celebrating it because watching actors of one gender play the other gender is the experience of the Elizabethan audience. Because we, uh, there, were, I was thinking this morning, like if Shakespeare was writing forty years later, he would have had been able to write much better female roles because women were allowed to perform on stage just after the next kind of generation after. But during his time, it was illegal. So he had men playing women. So for the Elizabethan audience, they had to suspend their disbelief um, as soon as the play opened because you had a Juliet walking out who was probably a 15-year-old boy. So 
for the purists, they get to experience that. It's just in the reverse on our show. And, you know, I think that um, to do these plays, you need to acknowledge the circumstances of the play and in which they were written. And I think to ignore um, the constraints on the character's gender is um, to actually... Uh, it doesn't help those characters. So the way that Peter tends to do um, cross-gender casting is that the character remains the gender of that character. However, the um, it just means we have actors of all genders being able to play in the space and it just means we don't have a bunch of dudes walking around grabbing their crotches and being bawdy. It's just not as interesting, I don't think. Yeah, and... Uh, I was about to say the play is the thing, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's also important to remember that that this is playing. Yeah, that uh, that theatre is by nature playing. Uh, it's why a play is called a play, and so mm. being able to to have fun and to let go of convention mm. can be important. Um, Rose, for your take on Juliet, I read a review, for example, that said that despite the fact that she's 13, you're leaning into the, the intelligence of the character rather than the, I don't know, the, the willful emotional state of a 13-year-old. Talk to us about that casting, that kind of acting decision from you. Yeah, I mean, really I just put the text first. So given circumstances all come out of that, um, if when the text is is first um i mean yeah that's the most important thing so uh, her age became fairly irrelevant it, it's also kind of implausible as well you already have to suspend your disbelief to to imagine a 13 year old saying the, the things that she says she's incredibly intelligent mature um but there's a real it's such a fantastic role um there's such a range at times i feel like i can really lean into her youth and you know it's also my youth I I don't feel like I'm having to put on those sort of teenage things and feelings. Um, they're within me as a 30-year-old. And at times she acts well beyond her years. Um, so I found the age just pretty much irrelevant um, ultimately. Uh, the text is complicated. Um, it's yeah, I can really explore her maturity and immaturity at times, but I feel like that would be the case even if I were, you know, 10 years older again or older again. I think falling as ecstatically and madly in love as she does, um, at any age you can act, you know, 13 years old again. Yeah. Mm. That giddiness, mm. of, you know. Uh, and, Jacob, your take on Romeo? Yeah, I I mean, I luckily don't have the constraints of Romeo's age being mentioned in the play, but uh, we assume he's around the same age. I like to assume the same age as, as Juliet. Um, people say he's a little bit older, but there's literally no textual evidence for it. Um, yeah, same thing for me. Like, uh, you know, I my partner who I'm with now, Jane, we met doing Hamlet a couple of years ago, and, uh, like, I <laughs> fell head over heels, like acted like, impulsively and, like, I, I, I don't have to imagine <laughs> too much to understand what it's like to see a person immediately fall in love with them and pursue that person. It's not – I don't have to imagine what it was like. It's just right there. So um, – and also for Rose and I, we've been friends for a long time. So uh, I think our familiar – oh, that word's hard for me to say – familiarity 
Yeah. I'm a good actor, I promise. Just some words, <laughs> just that tough. Um, I think it really helps. It kind of short-circuited the chemistry for us and we can kind of build on our relationship. So a lot of my Romeo comes out of uh, the humour that Rose and I bring to our own relationship. Bell Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is on in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne until the 29th of July. You can book by going to www.bellshakespeare.com.au or artscentremelbourne.com.au. I've been chatting with Rose Riley and Jacob Warner, who are playing Juliet and Romeo, respectively, in Bell Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. As I said, on until the 29th of July. It's been a pleasure chatting to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Triple R. I'm going to be finding out about a group exhibition called Walking Through the Darkness at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy. I am joined by Catelyn Langford, who uh, is a curator at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy, uh, and artist Buzz Gardner, who is presenting work at CCP as part of the exhibition Walking Through the Darkness. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi, Catelyn, we'll start with you. Uh, talk to us about curating an exhibition called Walking Through the Darkness because one of the intriguing things, when we think about photography, we usually think about light. Light as a subject, light as a medium, uh, light through a camera lens to create photographic work. This is the opposite. Somewhat, yeah. So uh, when we think about photography, we often do, as you say, think about light. In its sort of Greek origins, it means effectively to draw with light. But in actual fact, photography is a medium that relies on light and darkness in equal measure. And you can really see that if you think about the one of the sort of origin stories of photography, this idea of the camera obscura, which is effectively a sort of dark chamber um, where with a little bit of light you can effectively project the outside world in. And we've sort of related this idea of this this history through having a dark chamber effectively installed at CCP by the artist Renato Colangelo. But we're also then looking at very much the contemporary ideas of, of this idea of light and darkness in this space. So we've brought together 15 uh, artists, both those emerging and established Australian artists, as well as those really well-known international artists who are sort of in dialogue exploring this idea of darkness and light and this sort of space between darkness and light, whether that's to sort of record new impressions, um, bring things out of the darkness, including suppressed histories or censored um, histories as well, censored aspects through either politics or other things, but also uh, looking at sort of the use of photography to record or remember and remember those people who've, who've passed. So we've got quite a number of different stories and elements in this that respond to this idea of darkness and light. It's not uh, depressing, I would say, because it's, it's, a, it's a dark time, we're in the middle of winter, but we're trying to also think about sort of the positive aspects of photography. Hmm. Uh, given that broad range of kind of ideas and themes and works represented, Buzz, kind of where do you fit into that kind of, uh, that kind of overview that Catelyn has just given us? Yeah, so I guess I'm the suppressed histories and bringing to light, I'm from Vanuatu and my mum's from the Solomons, my dad's Australian, so blackbirding is what I'm looking at. And it's blackbirding was, the majority was from Melanesia, which is Vanuatu, Solomons, PNG. Yeah, so. And an aspect of Australian history, which is A, shameful, mm -hmm. uh, and B, many Australians either don't know about or would prefer not to discuss. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's very true. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's, we don't, 
hear much of it in Australia, but I know that growing up in Vanuatu, it's taught in the curriculum. Um, so it's something I've grown up with. And now that I'm in Australia, I think it's a it's been an opportunity for me to look at it even more. Yeah. Now, blackbirding, uh, could you describe what we mean by blackbirding? For so blackbirding was... It was Australians that would go over to the islands and it's enforced labour. So slavery, we look at it now as sugar slaves. It was the sugar industry that took labour from the islands for profit, um, mostly in Queensland. So in the Bundaberg region and down south in Coogeon. Um, yeah, slavery. Yeah. Catelyn, in terms of Buzz and uh, his practice, talk mm-hmm. to us about what... You- what it was about his work that you wanted to bring into the exhibition. Yeah, so when we were looking at Buzz's work, it was this idea of him using photography to bring to light these suppressed histories, but particularly given the practice that he's he's speaking about wasn't particularly documented in photography. His practice is using modern aspects of photography to sort of bring to light and make us imagine these spaces. So particularly with his work, he photographs areas and spaces that he's witnessed, that he imagines that Melanesians might have sort of lived in, inhabited, and worked in and then he uses digital um, images that he's gained from sort of various aspects like museum collections to layer them into these images and bring to light sort of these unseen histories through photography so very much this idea of bringing it out of the darkness and into the light especially these things that we can't see and he's very much in dialogue with other artists in the show like Darren Tani Tan and and Rushdie Anwar as well as Ori Gersht um, who are sort of using photography to make us think about these aspects of history that have remained sort of unseen and sort of bringing them out of this sort of censorship or suppression, yeah. But it sounds like a, um, an act both of uh, strong imagination to mm. create something that has not been documented to a degree, but also an act of reclamation and celebration, celebration of the, of the spirit of the people who were not broken by this process. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, I think it also came about after the pandemic and... I, the borders were closed to the islands, so I think I was maybe forced to look at Australia as my home. I don't think I had until then. I always had this opportunity to go back to the islands, and losing that was tough for me, so I think I started looking for these spaces that did remind me of the islands, and it was just intrinsic. It wasn't. I didn't go out looking for that. I think I'd just go for a ride out to out to the hinterland and I'd notice these little pockets of spaces. I was like, this, this reminds me of home. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of the, the photos that you've created that are being shown at CCP for walking through the darkness, uh, what, going to places that do exist uh, and imagining what may have happened there, for example, what, are, no. what will we see in your work? Uh, so it's these spaces that it's completely made up in my mind. They weren't documented spaces that were frequented by Melanesians. It is just me. This is my surrounds. Um, and then it's an imagining of if I feel this connection to this space, maybe there was this feeling of these spaces remind us of home and maybe they were drawn to that. And, Catelyn, talk to us about some of the other artists who are in Walking Through the Darkness. 
Yeah, so we've got 15 artists in total and they're drawing from sort of very well-known international artists. We've got Todd Heido, who is one of these sort of pioneering American photographers who really established a new way of us thinking about American suburbia and we're showing his house hunting series. Uh, really large, massive uh, works of his um, shown when you enter the space. from, And they're sort of these quite eerie uh, suburban streets shot in darkness and they've got this sort of light emanating from the window and he used to photograph these at night time as he went around American suburbia to try and imagine what these people were doing inside these spaces. And these are in dialogue with works by Vanessa Winship where she journeyed around um, Ohio trying to make sense of sort of her um, experience of documenting Ohio um, Amish communities. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we've got this wonderful series by Seichi Furaya, uh, who's a Japanese artist based in Austria, who's using photography and his archive that he took across uh, sort of 30 years um, and sort of these images that he took over his seven-year relationship with his wife, Christine, who died by suicide, where he's trying to use photography to piece together their life together. Um, and then finally, sort of one of the other really powerful works that we have in this series is uh, Rinko Kawauchi's Halo series, where she's using photography to think about these greater forces in life, um, sort of these uh, amazing... Um, you know, volcanoes and, and sort of wonderful murmurations of birth, birds in, in southeastern England and sort of looking at the use of photography to understand these, these bigger forces in life. So quite a range of different artists doing quite different things, but really brought together through this use of photography to understand and, and record impressions. Buzz, for you as an artist, how important is it to have an opportunity like this to have your work situated amongst such a, an array of artists at different stages of their careers and from different nationalities? Nationalities as well. Yeah, it's huge. Because um, Richard, I'm nobody like in this space. No, <laughs> like, and I say that with joy. Because for this work and these themes to have this space in CCP, like everyone wants to be in CCP, um, it means a lot to me. And it, I guess, I always worry that there would never be this space for this work and this history. Um, so to have this opportunity is yeah huge for me. And where does the the body of work that is being shown at CCP, where do you see that fitting into the rest of your practice? Because having looked at your website, and people can go to buzzgardener.com to see some of Buzz's issues, the fact that you've got fashion photography, you've got a series of still lifes, for example, kind of where do you see this work kind of sitting in your, kind of your practice generally? Well, I see it. There is a broad range of yeah, themes that I, I work through, um, and that started because... I just saw there was a lack of representation of photography in general in the islands. And so I just felt there was a need for a fashion photographer, someone that does food, someone that does documentary work. So I think I spread myself across all of that. But I think the overarching theme of Melanesia um, is common in all of that. So this body of work, it, it currently sits as... I like to think of the work in like a chronological order. And this is, like, the base, the history going back. Um, and I think after this one, there's one that's currently in development about the... It's called Palm. It's the Pacific Islanders labour scheme at the moment, which Solomon Islanders and Vanuatu workers are brought in to cover worker shortages in, like, low, low to medium-skilled labour in Australia, so like fruit picking. Yeah, and we've heard some horror stories from mm, that exactly are just right. as recent as uh, some of the horror stories from the past. Exactly, well. so there's that connection there. Um, 
So eventually I'm not in any rush. It'll all, yeah, it'll all unfold. Yeah. Um, given some of the work that you've done, the, the fashion photography and so forth, um, is it also valuable to have this opportunity to extend your practice into fine art as opposed to the, the commercial photographic realm? Because I know so many photographers work along a spectrum. They pay the bills by doing mm. a, kind of a fashion shoot or an interior design shoot yeah. or something and then have the opportunity as a result to time and space to think creatively. Yeah, I, I would love that. I, I haven't thought about that too much, but, yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, Catelyn, in terms of walking through the darkness as an overall exhibition, obviously there's... Uh, Talk to us about some of the public programs because the opportunity to hear direct from artists is really valuable. Floor talks to hear direct from the curator and so forth. What's coming up? Yeah, so we've got quite a number of public programs. Really excitingly, because we feature so many Australian and also Melbourne-based artists, we will be firstly launching uh, tomorrow night at 6pm, Friday at CCP. So please do come down and join us to open and, and celebrate this exhibition in the dark, walking through darkness. But also then the next day on Saturday at 2pm, I'll be in dialogue with uh, quite a number of the Australian artists. So Buzz himself will be mm -hmm. there. Also Magana McGee, Darren Tani Tan, Fassi Queso um, and Amos Gebhardt will be all speaking about their work. Um, Magana McGee, I, by, the way, by the way, I believe has a book launch coming yes, up as well. Yes, as well. So then the following weekend on the 29th, we're having a book launch for her uh, wonderful uh, new book called Beware of People Who Don't Like Cats. A very uh, good title, I'd say. Um, so we've got that and then we're also doing quite a number of other public programs, including workshops around sort of the, the camera obscura and then on the 12th of August we're having a wonderful event between Buzz and Amy Batalabasi who will be just speaking about sort of this blackbirding uh, aspect of history that is united through their practices. She is a filmmaker as well based here in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. So if you've never been down to the Centre for Contemporary Photography before uh, CCP is located at 404 George Street in Fitzroy Walking Through Darkness, the exhibition we're discussing, uh, yeah, opening tomorrow night and running through until the 10th of September at CCP, which is open Wednesdays to Sundays, 11am till 5pm, and you can go to ccp.org.au for more details about all of that. Uh, and, Catelyn, we should talk just a little bit more about the camera obscure, obscura that has been installed. I will just try and get the name of the thing right to begin with, camera obscura. Uh, how large a space are we talking about here to, to recreate this old form of, of uh, the, the visual image. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite a large space. So if you know CCP, you know that we've got these sort of projection windows towards the end of the gallery number three. And we've kind of created a space where you fit probably five people rather snugly. But it's, it's this wonderful space that Renato's uh, built and you sort of enter through a curtain and it completely consumes you in this sort of womb-like space where you, you see all of the sort of uh, Fitzroy uh, streets behind you, people doing the posts. It's really wonderful in the morning because you see everyone doing their daily commute. Uh, so I really encourage people to come down and experience this. Um, it's a really wonderful thing that takes you back to the early history of photography. So please do come down. So uh, as we said, head along to the Centre for Contemporary Photography, CCP, to check out Walking Through the Darkness from tomorrow until the 10th of September, 404 George Street, Fitzroy, and go to www.ccp.org.au for details. And if you want to know a bit more about Buzz and his practice, buzzgardener.com. Thank you absolutely both for coming in. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Richard. Chookers for the exhibition. And uh, I don't know, do you say chookers in the visual arts world or is it just a theatre thing? We will now. Thank you. Triple okay. R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts. 
a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 